Hey there, and welcome back to Browns Cast, the official podcast of the Cleveland Browns. I'm Max Linsky. So this is episode four of our 2015 season, and it's a uh, special one this week. We've got Jim Brown. If you're listening to this show, I don't think Jim Brown needs much of an introduction. He's the greatest player in the history of this organization, arguably the greatest player in the history of the game. So instead of just reading his Wikipedia page to you and ticking off all the TDs and yards and MVPs, I'd like to take a second before we get into the interview and just tell you a little bit about Jim Brown right now, 2015. He's 79 now. He's still huge, built like a truck, and the guy is tough. You can feel how tough he is just when he walks in the room. Another thing I learned very quickly, he doesn't like to waste his time. And that's significant because he spends a lot of that time with the Browns. His official title is special advisor, but really he's more like a spiritual advisor. And whether he's just walking through the facility or standing on the sidelines watching practice or talking to the players afterwards, he's a link to the past, sure, but it's more than that. The players call him GOAT, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. And he's like this living, breathing monument to greatness. I know that's kind of, it's kind of dramatic, but it's true. And greatness is what he stood for on the field. It's what he cared about. It's what he believed in. Uh, it was the most important thing to him in football. And we talked about that in this conversation. But, of course, Jim Brown has always stood for way more than just his play on the field. He's been speaking his mind, no filter, for over 50 years, and that has not changed He's got a lot to say about race, about politics, about the NFL, and we got into all of that in this conversation. There's also a little adult language in here, so if you're listening with kids, be prepared. Just to set the scene for you, it's 8.30 a.m. on a Tuesday. We're in an empty room in the Browns facility in Berea. Uh, we only had 30 minutes, but once we started talking, once we really started talking, specifically once Jim Brown said, why don't you have the courage to ask me some real questions, the conversation stretched well into the morning. Jim Brown, welcome to the show. Thank you uh, so much for doing it. It's an honor to have you. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here. I was wondering if we could if we could start uh, with um, something that happened a long time ago, or, or December twenty seventh, nineteen sixty four. Does that date ring a bell to you? Well, nineteen sixty four naturally is the championship year, and that's the championship day. Well, and I'm I'm sort of uh, I'm I'm new to Brown's history, and I was reading about. Uh, that championship and about this speech you gave. Well, is there a question there? <laughs> yeah, the question's coming. Well, I guess the question is, uh, do, you, do you remember that speech? Do you remember the mood in that locker room? Uh, not really. Actually, I don't ever think about it. So, you know, it's nothing, there's nothing that I sit down and think about. In 1964, we won the championship. I have thoughts about it. You guys were huge underdogs, right? Yeah, we were very uh, big underdogs, and rightfully so because they had a uh, a great team. Yeah, Unitas. A lot of Hall Hall of Famers: Johnny Unitas, you know, Lenny Moore, Big Daddy Lipscomb, I think. (laughs) Just a lot of guys that were really outstanding players. My sense is that at that time you didn't address the team very often. This was a this was a, a rare thing. Uh, yeah, I imagine it would be because I didn't believe in speeches too much. How come? You've got to play the game, and if you're an adult, then you're going to play the game to win it, and you're going to give your best. And I don't really need someone pumping me up 
are reminding me, you know, what the task is before us. I don't criticize anyone that needs that, but who would I want to listen to to pump me up to get me ready for a game that is the biggest game of my life? I mean, if I'm going to get to the championship, I'm doggone sure going to uh, have my own thoughts. But once in a while there comes a moment when you uh, feel that saying something could mean something to others. Do you remember what you said? Sitting here with you, I would have to go back and think about it, but my (laughs) personality is not based upon uh, doing this interview. (laughs) Uh, Trying to remember things that's back in the past. I have the future to look forward to and things to accomplish. Should I cross off all my questions about the past then? You know, in this interview, you can do what you want to do. (laughs) What I would prefer you to do is not to be cute and uh, to give me an opportunity to express myself by the quality of your questions. I accept the challenge. It's, it's hard for me to not be cute, but I'll try. Well, <laughs> there's an answer to most things. So uh, I agreed to do the interview, and I'll do the best I can with what you put forth. Okay. And I'll try to be, you know, uh, honest with you and be myself. I appreciate that. Well, let me ask you what I really want to ask you about then. I read uh, an interview a couple of days ago uh, that you did in February 1968 with Alex Haley in Playboy. Do you remember that interview? Yeah. And I remember the event, and I remember my impressions of it. It was one of the... Uh, few interviews that I liked. Why'd you like it? Because of Alex and uh, his questions. What struck me reading it was that a lot of those questions are as pertinent today as they were then, particularly about race in America. And I was surprised by how relevant it seemed, given the fact that it was 1968. I mean, the conversation that's happening in this country right now around race felt very similar to the one that you guys were having then. How do you think those dynamics have changed? Well, the first, the first thing I'd like to say is uh, it's interesting how you went from being cute to touching on an interview that really meant something to me. And that's a big jump, and I appreciate it. As I recall, I was happy that Alex was Alex and that he had the intelligence to be able to put me in a, in a, in a state that I like being in. I'll, I'll share something with you. We uh, schemed on that interview. We had the same purpose. We wanted to make a statement. So it wasn't like a normal interview. Alex and I had sort of put it together. And because there are things that we both wanted to to say, and it gave us a great platform. Because at the time, the Playboy, that Playboy interview was, I thought, what made Playboy. They uh, had some great 
some great interviews. Yeah. And uh, it was an opportunity for Alex and myself to talk about issues. I don't remember the detail of the interview, but I do recall that uh, we both felt it was a time to be able to express ourselves and uh, make some points. Well, I guess I, I want to give you the opportunity to make any points uh, today about what's going on in the country now. I was struck by how relevant what you were saying, how similar it was to what many of the leading activists are talking about now. Well, I always uh, understood that the truth was so important. And if you told the truth and took the chance, one day uh, people will understand. A lot of times when you take that chance, you get criticized because people are not there yet. But I always considered myself being a conscientious person that paid attention. And when I spoke, I didn't just speak for the present, I spoke for the future. And I always said, you know, if I could look back 50 years from now and appreciate my interview, appreciate what I'm saying, then I'm on target. But if I say some things to satisfy people and to be popular, 50 years from then, I would be looking at myself and saying, my God, you know, you sold out. You went for the popularity, not the truth. And so it's interesting that you brought that up because I was definitely uh, trying to make points that I thought would be relevant forever. I think you did it. Well, I appreciate you being able to uh, <laughs> get into that uh, kind of thing. So I give you a lot of credit on that. Thanks. Because very few people would even talk about that or have had the curiosity to read it and, you know, take it seriously, you know. Oh, yeah, there was no chance of me not taking it seriously. Can I ask you a couple more questions about it, and then we should talk about football? Uh, whatever. <laughs> I maybe didn't ask this as clearly as I could have. Do you feel like the dynamics that you and Haley were trying to point out, the systemic distribution of power in this country, do you think that those dynamics have changed since 1968? Do you think that what's happening now is a younger generation of people trying to do the same thing you were doing then? Unfortunately, we're almost, you know, out in the middle of the ocean with a lifeboat and a storm is out there and we're trying to raise safety. Today we have a generation of African-American people that are doing real well. They're making a lot of money and they have a platform to make a lot of points. And uh, the strongest points that they're making are like the weakest points of the days that I was their age. They're not even coming close to taking the stance that they should be taking. 
and they do not recognize that money do not make things right, and popularity is not greatness. And I'll tell you a dynamic, I'll give you a dynamic. LeBron James made a gesture to me yeah. at a basketball game, and that was probably the most significant thing that has happened to me during these last 20 years. Wow. Because he had the intelligence and the foresight to make a simple gesture of respect, which meant that he was paying attention and he knew the platform that he had and he knew who he was. And when he made that gesture, so many people around the country understood it and respected it. And I think were motivated by it because people are motivated when one individual gives another individual respect. And people like that. And when a young man at the peak of his career has the ability to think and to take advantage of a platform and to give that respect, boy, he's, he's making a difference because in my world, all these people I work with, the Curtis Martins, the Ray Lewis's, these great individuals, you know, they are, are looking at that and they're right there. And then I turn it into myself and say, okay, my example is myself. I'm not rich, I'm not powerful, but I'm not controlled by anybody. And I recognize that there is a power that controls things. And the only way that we can change that is to unite as people that want to be free and uh, protest and educate and let these youngsters understand that uh, the responsibility starts with self and how you represent yourself and how you represent your community. If, if you feel like that conversation today is a watered-down version of the one that you and Alex Haley were having. If you feel like there is not a, a leader or multiple leaders right now who are pushing in the way that you think needs to be pushed, so pushing not up to just get a seat at that table, but around the other side to create some other system, are you optimistic that those people will come along, that that will happen? Are you hopeful? Absolutely. I know that, uh, as I said, Curtis Martin and Ray Lewis, just a couple of guys, well-known. The spirit that they have and the intelligence and the fact that I know when it's time for all of us to come together and to make a statement and I know the concentration on violence will end a lot of the violence. 
And I know the concentration on education, quality education, is going to be pushed to the forefront. Uh, we're working on it. And I'm a part of it. Yeah, I'm optimistic. Well, I should probably ask you a little bit about, uh, about the team. We're, we're here in, in Cleveland, and uh, after we finish up here, you're going to go out and watch practice. And I'm interested in why you're here. I mean, you don't have to be here, right? No. So why are you here? There's a lot of things going on here. There's a lot of opportunities here. The National Football League is uh, more than just people playing football. The tentacles reach out into many arenas. I like that I have a history here. And my attitude is if I can make some contribution, that I would like to do that. What's the impact you're hoping to have on these young guys? I see, I see the way that they talk to you and the way they they look at you. It's, it's with tremendous respect. They all call you goat. It's very difficult to do anything without having some sense of history. You know, you say 1964, and you say we were great underdogs. And we were. But we won. I think it was 27 zip. Pretty much, yeah. And there was a reason we won 27 zip. Every member of that team played their butt off. Every member of that team was motivated to play as hard as they could and to play their position and to know the value of playing their position. And it didn't matter how small it was, they knew that if they played their position, it would fit into the big picture. And that would give us a chance to beat this giant of a team. There's a tradition that the Browns had and lost. And uh, we've got to get that tradition back. Do you miss playing? Oh, I don't miss anything. But the worst thing for me is to forget that I'm 80 years old, almost 80 years old. I can't run the ball. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm not going to get out there and start zigzagging around <laughs> talking to these guys about this is how I used to do it. <laughs> they look at me, yes, sir, Mr. Brown. <laughs> and we both be laughing. So anyway. You don't go there. I think that that mentality, for you, it, maybe it's easy. You can laugh it off. But I think what you're talking about is, is hard for most people to not try and keep reliving past glories, to not live in the past. Everywhere you go, people introduce you as the greatest football player of all time. And I think it's pretty impressive and rare that you're able to say it's in the past. Many people can't do that. Many people who reach the heights that you reached live those moments every day. How do you not do that? You answered your question. Many people think all kinds of things. My thing was that I played the game, and if I didn't play it enough, and it sounds arrogant, man, it sounds bad, but I'm gonna give it to you. If I did not play the game well enough to get in on the first ballot, then I wasn't going in. Really? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> what I did wasn't good enough in their in their mind to put me in on the first ballot. Then I'm not going to be good enough three or four years later. You know, I mean, I don't know what was going to be changed. Nothing could be changed about my performance. Sure. It was either there when you first saw it or it wasn't. Now, that's not a put-down on guys that go in later and so forth and so on because there are borderline things and you are voting and so forth and so on. But being in the Hall of Fame doesn't describe me. An article that's complimentary doesn't describe me. The only thing that described me is my performance. If there were a lot more good performances than bad, then that's good. And uh, there was a level of consistency that made me feel good about my career. 5.2 yards of carry, that'll do that. Yeah. And I always say to people, I say, the reason that I like that particular statistic is because simple, if you simplify it, it says... I carried the ball this many times, it resulted in this many yards. It also means uh, if you just gave it to Jim Brown twice, you'd probably get a first down. Well, that's your thought about that. <laughs> I put it a different way. If, if I got the ball so many times and I gained so many yards, that's the way it should be. But what happens in life, you always run into someone that paid attention. And here's what happens in my life. A guy, people come up now and they say, and I asked my wife about this, they say, man, thanks a lot for what you did for us. I wonder what he really means. But they say it in a genuine way, thanks a lot for what you did for us. And, man, I kind of like that. So in sports you have those moments where that fan identifies with you and you identify with that fan. You seem to have this relentless interest in the truth and thoughtfulness, respect, people being at their best. Is that, is that fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you ever take a break from that? Or, or, or is that how you've always lived your life? Has it been that 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 79 years? It's down at the Hall of Fame. Uh, I can't think of who it was. But one of my fellow runners said that what he remembers is the things he didn't do. Not the things he did, the things he didn't do. So my statement is that's how I am. That touchdown I should have scored and didn't make the right move. I remember it clearly and it and it agonizes me. Still does. I don't walk around thinking, oh I did this and did that and did this. I think, Jesus, Christmas, I made the wrong cut. You just focused on how you could be better. Yeah. 
Are you that way in the rest of your life or just with sports? Do you have regrets about other aspects of your life? Oh, yeah, of course. Because life doesn't start with football. Life starts with life. I made mistakes on, uh, misjudged, uh, was wrong, you know. I can admit it. But the thing about it is once again, when you're dealing with media or the general public, they want you to admit a lot of things that are not true. And they're not smart enough to get you to talk about the things that's negative to you, but are true. So they think you're in denial when they say, well, you did so and so. I said, no, I didn't do that. But but I read you this, I said, no, I didn't do that. Now I could tell you some things I did if you <laughs> want to listen, but it wasn't that, you know. I told a bunch of people I was going to get to talk to you, and um, every single one of them said you got to ask about lacrosse. I'm sure you get asked about that a lot. If there was a, a national lacrosse league that was on the level that the NFL had been when you were coming out of school, do you think you would have played lacrosse? No. Football was your, was your true love? I never looked at it that way. How'd you look at it? Football was uh, an opportunity, and I think it would have been a better opportunity than anything else. Even if lacrosse was a national sport, I think. Well, lacrosse couldn't have been more, that's just like making up something. What existed is that basketball, baseball, football. Football was my best chance to be successful as a professional, as things existed. So I wasn't walking around saying to myself, Man, if everything was equal, I would play lacrosse. Right. <laughs> you know, everything was what it was, and and I played what I played because it gave me the greatest opportunity to be successful. I like most sports in season. Mm-hmm. I like all the sports of what they had, but then when you dealt with making a living and and all of that, football was my best shot. What do you like about lacrosse? Could be as skillful with the stick as possible. You, you could practice stick work all day long, and you can get very good with your stick—lefty, righty, underhand, you know—and it was fast. You could, you could use your speed and quickness. It's interesting that you say about lacrosse that that the thing you loved about it was you could practice your stick work and get great at it. I read about you that when you were playing, you had. This, these really strict regimens, w- workout regimens, and you never smoked a cigarette, and you had a workout thing you would do, uh, you could do in a hotel room if you needed to, set of like calisthenics and stuff. Do you still have daily habits like that? I have uh, things that I do that contribute to my life, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally. What are they? Well, I don't smoke. Never have smoked. I thought it was the most ridiculous thing for anybody to do. To smoke a cigarette, you know. I mean, <laughs> sorry, but I saw no reason to ever smoke a cigarette. 
I don't deal with drugs, so no reason to deal with drugs. Once in a while, I might have a screwdriver, a portion of a screwdriver. But basically, I don't want to drink, and uh, I should be working out more than I do. So my wife and I are going to set up. We've got some uh, equipment, those machines for the bedroom. Mm -hmm. When I was playing, you know, certain things I didn't even think of doing because it would bring a question mark in my mind about my conditioning, mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, I had a particular way of living my life about, and being true to my ability to perform. I'll give an example of something. You have a football team and you have calisthenics and everybody does the same calisthenics, but most of the positions are different. So why should I be doing the same calisthenics that a big old tackle is doing? <laughs> so some things, they have an advance to understanding how a person gets the best out of calisthenics, you know, for the, based on the position that they play. You should work out your own solutions because a lot of things I could point out that are just not applicable to all of the players. It's about being thoughtful about your body and what your job is. It's maximizing everything to help you succeed. Right. Or even to allow a coach to put upon you his theories that you know don't work for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, that can cause you problems. Standing up to your coach can cause you problems. Well, the thing is, is that just because he's a coach, it doesn't mean that he understands everything. When I retired, I knew one day I'd be talking to you like this, right? And some of your questions would be based upon me having retired or whatever, whatever. And I laugh because I know that you couldn't find the reason that I retired. You couldn't identify with it. And uh, I would have the upper hand on you in the conversation. Because I would never understand what it's like to retire as the best player in the game. Because I don't you at all. Wouldn't, you would not identify right away with me and my thinking about retirement. So, for example, if I ask you, what do you think my reason for retirement was, what would you say? Well, there's some practical reasons, right? Well, whatever you would say, just say it. One was that you were shooting this movie in England, and Modell started to find you 1500 bucks a week for not coming to training camp. So that's a practical reason. But what I've heard you say again and again, and I've been thinking this whole time about how to ask you about it, was that you wanted to go out on top, was that you didn't want to ever be anything but your best. Is that right? Or why did you really leave? Well, the uh, thing was I was cognizant of great players that stayed too long. And it was always, always sad to see a player that was over the hill still trying to play. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I never wanted to be in that position. And when it was time for me to leave, 
I, I wrote the coach a letter, and I explained to him that, you know, I was going to retire, but if he felt he truly needed me and we'd get back to the championship, I would consider coming back. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I wrote the letter. In fact, Plain Deal has a letter. He was over here talking about if I didn't show up to camp, he was going to find me. Well, the thing was, the kind of contracts we had, that I had no obligation to him other than if I wanted to play, I had to play for Cleveland. That's all. Mm -hmm. He couldn't find me if, if I'm not there. <laughs> so if the issue is being there or not being there, what the hell is he talking about a fine for? I never knew you wrote that letter. Well, did you, and you and you meant it. You said you meant it. If if the, if they needed you, it wasn't like when like you like you know you break up with a girlfriend. And you say like we can still be friends. It wasn't like that. No, it was just a simple thing of, you know, I felt that uh, Leroy Kelly was going to be a great back. And then Ernie Green was still there blocking, so, and I just left the door slightly open, you know. But the real deal was, you know, I wanted to finish on top. And I finished MVP of the league, man. Yeah, led the league in Russian MVP. And that speaks for itself forever. Can I read you this quote from that Alex Haley interview that, yeah. uh, that I took down that I think connects to this? And I wonder if you, if you still feel like it's true, although I bet you do. Basically, I'm a guy who has to progress or I feel I'm stagnating. I don't mean just materially, but as a person. My interests have expanded in various areas, in racial relations, my various investments, and of course, my new movie career, but most of all, in my sense of responsibility to my people. For the rest of my life, I'm committed to taking part in the black struggle that's going on in this country. That's February 1968. Yeah, see, that was the kind of thing that I wanted to come out of my mouth so that sitting here now, I would feel good about it. Do you feel good about it? Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything that you want to come out of your mouth now? No, not really, because as you said, you know, most things that are good are there forever. Freedom, equality, and justice. That's for everybody at all times. It doesn't change. So you have to make statements that will live forever rather than trying to make statements that are popular. So if people don't understand what you're saying at that time, they'll understand 20 years from now. <laughs> so it's those who are in power that tell you just be patient and you can creep up this ladder, and then one day he will accept you to this level. You can sit at the table. Cut it right now. I said, are you telling me you, I got to wait for, to get my freedom? Just be fair. Cut the rules, man. People would like you to tone things down. Media wanted you to present yourself in a certain way. Right. And they used to try to make Bo Jackson the greatest athlete that ever lived. And he, he was a guy that was unfinished business. He never finished nothing. So it's all about this if he would have and all that. Well, if you would have, 
if I would have jumped 25 feet, it would have been 25 feet. <laughs> so a part of it is to do it, mm-hmm. you know, not to say I could have done it, because I was fast and I was big and I should and I had everything. And the greatest team contributor was Bill Russell. So if you're going to talk about the reality of what a team sport is about, then you take Bill Russell in high school, you take him in college, and you take him as a pro. And that was the greatest contributor to a team sport that ever lived, hands down. Do you think you're the greatest athlete that ever lived, hands down? No, I think uh, the Indian. Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe, yeah. Jim Thorpe was the greatest athlete that ever lived. He, he demonstrated the excellence in enough sports on the highest level to have that title. You didn't think I'd say that, did you? I was really interested to hear what you'd say. Yeah. You giving yourself number two? No. I really never looked at it that way because of what I would all I have fun with people talking about it. You could never come up with a number two that I would agree with. The great player that nobody really knows, athlete, was, was Jackie Robinson. If you study, you know, his career. His track football, stuff at UCLA is amazing. His track, his, foot, his football, his basketball, and his baseball. So he played them all. Now, in my career, nobody had any kind of idea what I played. <laughs> I was drafted by the Syracuse Nets. Yeah. 38 points a game in high school, right? Mm-hmm. That was one of I think the things. 38.5. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'm selling you short. Do you remember the first time you played football? No. Do you remember playing in high school? Yeah. Were you already thinking about the game on that kind of next level when you were in high school, or were you just playing? I was just playing in high school. I think trying to do the best I could, you know, trying to excel. The thing I was preoccupied with mostly was speed. And I thought about speed a lot and worked on speed a lot. When I was growing up, as a way of motivating me, my dad used to say, somewhere in the world, there's someone who's better at this than you are. There's always someone who's working harder who's better than you are. And that was a way of trying to get me to work harder myself. Mm -hmm. I know that you don't care about compliments. But what's it like to be known as the greatest person who ever played this game? There isn't someone out there who worked harder. See, it's funny, because when I tell you about speed, it'll come into almost everything. But I wasn't measuring myself a lot, but I develop an attitude that says, nobody can outwork me or outthink me. And that formula is a good formula for anybody because you got to put the combination of those two things together. And that was a belief, that was a, uh, a way of living that you just had from the start. Yeah. That's right. You, you've lived this incredible life. Incredible life. Sports, movies we didn't even talk about, your movie career. This incredible incredible work in the African-American community dedicated your life to that work. 
1968, you told Alex Haley, you're not the person, who, kind of person who likes to stagnate. So what's next for you? What, what do you want to accomplish in, uh, in the next chapter of your life? Ever since I can remember, there was something to accomplish, man, because look at the state of the country and the torches being passed. We're going to have a meeting at my home in about six weeks with some of the top guys in the country. You know, it's like the summit of when we got with Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, and John Wooten, and Bobby Mitchell. So it's almost a takeoff on the summit for those of us to get in my living room. And we're doing it in the living room for a reason, because a lot of things have happened in the living room. And we're going to ask these individuals to join forces, and we'll be able to raise a, a fund that can be strong enough to give us freedom on how we're going to approach the violence and the people that we want to hire. And we won't just depend upon any loan or grant or nothing. And we have a great mixture of, of individuals. This is the shot. I'm going to spearhead this move to get rid of some of that violence and to set up a system where a lot of our kids can get quality education. Mr. Brown, I'm so, I'm so tempted to uh, draw this back to where we started talking about, about that speech you gave in 1964 for the championship game, but uh, I think that counts as cute. Thanks for pushing back at the beginning. You taught me something about this. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. If I can bring that out of you to suit me, then we can have a hell of a conversation. Well, this has been a hell of a conversation. Yeah, it's a good conversation, but it takes two. So that's good. And that's respectful. That's... Thank you, sir. Okay, boss. Thanks for listening to Brown's Cast. I'm Max Linsky. I produced this show with Aaron Lemmer. Our music is from Francis and the Lights. You can find all the episodes on brownscast.com. And there's also a little form on there that uh, you can send us an email, let us know who you'd like to hear on the show. I'd like to thank everyone who's been uh, spreading the word. It's been really, really fun so far, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the season. We'll see you next time. <laughs>